0: Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice, with your host, Rocky Deer.
1: Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. I want to begin today's episode by thanking all of you who tune in with a special shout out to our regular listeners. This podcast is, for me at least, it's a labor of love and I'm deeply humbled and gratified whenever I hear that a topic or episode has touched or helped someone. Today, we have a special member-requested episode. Some of you have been asking about working from home and the legal issues that that arrangement entails. More specifically, there are questions about the employment law-related questions surrounding remote work and working from home. And to be honest, I hadn't given that issue much thought, but upon deeper reflection, yeah... I can totally see where that might be fodder for exploration. Now, full disclosure, (laughs) I work from home. And my team and I have been doing so, either fully or partially, for about 20 years. And yet, I know little to nothing about the employment law nuances surrounding that arrangement. (laughs) Pretty crazy. So today, I look forward to learning something close to my heart, something I didn't even know I should be delving into. So thank you again to the listeners who brought this issue to the fore. Now... To help us really get some insight into this topic, we're going to need a proverbial big gun. Trang Tran fits that bill. He's the name partner of the Tran Law Firm in Houston, Texas. Trang's firm handles employment law matters on both the employer and the employee side. And, well, he's a litigator. So he knows the impact that these issues can have where it ultimately counts in a courtroom. If you've been reading your Texas Bar Journal, you might also recognize Trang's name from the January 2022 edition of the journal, where he wrote a 2021 year in review piece focusing on the significant court decisions affecting employment law. So let's get right into it. Trang Tran, welcome to the podcast. I'm Rocky. So before we get into the substance of working from home and employment law, let me, let me ask you this: Are you working from home now, or are you in the office?
2: I have a hybrid arrangement. I work from home three days a week, and the rest of the time I work, come into the office.
1: What about your team? Is that the same thing for your office as well, for the rest of the attorneys and support staff?
2: It's really strange. Some of my team do a hybrid uh, work schedule like I do, and uh, some work completely from home.
1: Okay, so you've, you've got some experience now with the with the administrative side of work from home. Have you been... Either in your practice or just in the way you've been running your firm are you seeing any any significant issues employment law issues that we should be thinking about when when implementing these types of arrangements
2: I think I would best describe it as I told you so okay because for <laughs> many years we've been telling employers that uh, when an individual has a disability or mm. a medical problem sure. that they should be permitted to work from home and we've been hearing a lot of reasons why it's impossible it's not feasible Mm -hmm. to allow an employee to work from home they need to come to the office and if they run out of medical leave then it's going to be an employment problem but what this past two years has proven to us is that it's feasible Uh, you can't send people home if they have to work from home they can't they have mobility issues and so it demonstrates um, the type of accommodation that is available under the american with disability act and it has pros and cons.
1: It's interesting because, you know, you're, you're talking here about, you know, sort of medical leave issues. But now it looks like at least the world as we know it is looking at this becoming a normal part of work. Right. So you're, you're working from home. So, yes, from the medical leave perspective, that's that's kind of been an issue for a long time. What about what about now where it's becoming a regular feature? You know, it's no longer nine to five, and it's no longer, you know, clear-cut boundaries. Is that are, are you seeing that starting to make its way into employment law disputes of any kind?
2: You hit the nail on the head when you set boundaries, because when you have people working from home, sure, they're in different states. They may relocate to a a better state, or they may relocate to a different city, which has different jurisdiction, different laws that may apply. So an employer that hires an employee in Texas may end up having that same employee relocate to California and therefore subject the company to California statutes. Same thing in Colorado. When you relocate folks to different cities and states, you have to then keep track of them, find out how long they've been working out of town or in that state or city, and find out if different laws applies to that particular set.
1: Can you, as an employer, can you not sort of mandate or have them sign something that says, you know, if, I, if I'm a Texas employer, can I say, you know, you're agreeing to be bound by Texas employment law? Or, or are those questions really determined by where the employee is physically present?
2: That's a good question, Rocky, because then you're looking at contractual uh, obligations versus statutory obligations. Okay. Sometimes you can't waive uh, statutory application of labor law. So, if you relocate to San Diego, mm-hmm. or someone from California relocates to Austin, Texas, yeah. they may think that they still have rights under California law, but they may not. Uh, Texas law may apply. It depends on who makes that argument and which judge or arbitrator uh, receives that information and makes a decision.
1: As an employer, is it possible to put that in an employment manual saying, you know, you must be physically located in X state? or else you're no longer eligible to be an employee here and you can be terminated. I mean, is that something that they could do to try to control those jurisdictional issues, or does that also run afoul of statutory requirements?
2: I think that uh, limiting employee mobility currently is legal in Texas. Sure. However, uh, you're going to have a practical effect, and that is I heard that there's a a staffing shortage right now. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) No, I've heard about it. So if you have um, a problem recruiting good talent, uh, I think it's best not to restrict their mobility because when you have a work from home situation, why does it matter where they're located? Uh, The only thing you have to do as an employer is just have a legal department look at compliance issues to see if there's any adjustment that needs to be done. Oftentimes, there's not much of a change. You said legal department,
1: right? What does this do for smaller businesses that don't have legal departments? They're just, you know, they might be fewer than 50 employees and, you know, they're just kind of doing their work as they come around. And when legal issues arise, they're sort of surprised by it. You know, how do they protect themselves and what must they be doing to try to to navigate these waters?
2: Well, there's two ways to approach it. One is use independent contractors because then you don't have to worry about labor law if they're truly independent contractors. And the other, if they're employees, do two things. One is uh, have them check in every week to find out where they're working from, what city and state, and that way you can kind of, um, you can use technology also to determine where they're, they're working in. And once they pass that 30 day mark, start keeping an eye out. Step two, Google's your friend. If you see that someone's working consistently in another state, another city, I would do the state labor board, so Texas labor board, California labor board, and, and generally you will pull up the applicable uh, agency that regulates labor in that uh, particular state. They generally have a pretty good um, list and description of applicable laws
1: interesting okay so I, I think you've you've kind of touched on this a little bit but if I'm an employer and if I've got employees that either partially or fully are working from home either the hybrid or the full-time arrangement what are some of the questions that I should be asking and let's maybe list those out so that way those employers can kind of have those you know as, as bullet points what should they have up on their on their sticky notes on their monitors to kind of help them through this
2: I think the first thing is, you have to get a inventory of their work environment. What type of equipment, what type of privacy uh, pre- precautions do they have in place? Are they working in a shared workspace where a spouse or other members of the family or wh- whoever they live with have access to, the, to their, um, their computers, mm-hmm. can listen in, um, can observe uh, the work and process? Because if you fail to do that, you may waive your defenses in a trade secret claim
1: oh interesting okay okay
2: yeah uh number two is you you basically have to ask them about what the preference work time and hours are because um get an honest survey of when these employees like to work what days of the week because you can't stop them from working and you have to account for every minute and make sure they're compensated if they're not exempt and so um, if someone says, I like to work evenings, you, you, you have to make some adjustments, but um, you gotta allocate the hours. If you're trying to regulate labor costs, determine how many hours that employee survey shows. If you have a bunch of work folks that are working from home that are working Saturdays and Sunday, uh, that means that you are going to have to allocate resources, dedicated resources or support staff to help them during the weekend. So it may increase your cost. So I'll, I would say a good survey of their preference, preferred hours or working days are important. And last of all, uh, I think you have to make sure that they have a very firm understanding of your computer protocol, internet usage. Make sure that they're not working from home on their personal computers, mm-hmm. which may be compromised. Sure. Make sure they understand that they have to use um, basically uh, good offset. Uh, operational security meaning maybe use a VPN mm-hmm. uh, don't do personal browsing on your computer sure uh, don't click weird files things that you normally have to do in the office you have to then push that out to the workers when they're working from home
1: so we need to take a a quick commercial break but when we come back we need to maybe talk about you know how what tools an employer has to kind of regulate those issues? Cause you just said you can't stop an employee from working, but then how do you, how do you enforce these rules when they're kind of out on their own at home? So let's talk about that after we hear a few words from our sponsors. We'll be right back. The Texas lawyers assistance program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at 1-800-343-8527. Okay, we are back with Trang Tran and the question we have after we left off last time was how or well, even whether an employer can can regulate when an employee works, what kind of equipment they're using, and whether they're they're in compliance with company policies when they choose to work and possibly work overtime and incur additional costs if they are non-exempt from from wage and hour issues. So, Trank, let's let's maybe dive into that. What tools does an employer have at at its disposal?
2: Well, Rocky, I'll tell you, in my observation, what tools are available, but these are not my uh, preference. Okay. I, haven't, I wouldn't even recommend that they be used. Okay. But I'll uh, because I have personal feelings about whether or not it's proper. Hmm. Sure. <laughs> because I'm I, I respect. Uh, individual's privacy, Sure, but here are the tools. Okay. Um, employers will use key logging uh, software to mm. see if employees are typing or using their mouse. Mm. They are using um, surveillance camera uh, software, so they would take snapshots of in- the employees while they're working mm-hmm. on a company computer Every 15 minutes, you can change the setting to 10, but generally, I've seen it 15 at least once an hour. They take a snapshot and they record for a few minutes what that employee is doing. And um, the other way to do it is you maintain communication with them through a communication platform, such as Slack or Microsoft Teams. In addition, you can use uh, Zoom conference calls, video calls, so that you can talk to the individuals. and that's one way people are keeping tabs mm-hmm. of the employees getting a, a feel of their vibe, their energy level, and whether or not they're working, because they can see you on your webcam.
1: You talked a while ago about how, and I don't think it's news to anybody that there are staffing shortages, not just in the service industry, but even in, in office environments. Do you think employment law is going to change and adapt? Do you think the laws are going to at some point bend to some degree to make it more more amenable for employees to work from home and for employers to kind of you know regulate their activities. You know, <clears throat> and, and here's kind of what I'm getting at is so you talked about the wage and hour issue, right? An employee chooses to start working and they work more than they're allotted 40 hours and now suddenly the employer could be on the hook for overtime. And that could occur, especially if they're if they're non-exempt from these, from these wage and hour type claims. So do you think employment law is going to now have to start changing to say, all right, you know, in that scenario, the employee only gets overtime if it was sanctioned by the employer or, you know, there's certain things that have to be done before an employee can be eligible for wage and hour. Do you think that's, do you think that's where it's going to go or do you see this heading in a different direction?
2: Rocky, I think the law doesn't need to change. The laws are great right now. Okay. The statutes are written the way they are. Sure. And, uh, Some of these statutes have been on the books for over 15, 20 years. They don't need to be changed, but what happens is the laws are interpreted by judges Mm -hmm. through published opinion every month, every year, and it piles up into a body of law, of of interpretation of the statute. That's where I think you can add the human dynamics, uh, common sense, where judges can look at it and make an interpretation. And I'll give you an example. Some of these uh, labor statutes, only applies to, um, they require a minimum number of employees, mm-hmm. say 50. Sure. And you have to measure whether or not they employ 50 employees in one location. Mm-hmm. Well, when you have a dispersed workforce and everyone's working from home, you can't count, you can't do a headcount at the mm-hmm. headquarter or the office. So then some judge is going to have to decide if some an employee's work-from-home office is considered part of the company's um, footprint for a headcount purpose. And uh, if they don't count that, they count that the individual working from home is not, where they don't meet the headcount for the application of the statute, then the statute doesn't apply. A judge can make that decision. And if more judges follow that interpretation, then you have an established body of law. So I could see that working.
1: Th- that could even have issues outside of the employment law context for... For issues like personal jurisdiction over an employer, right? Because if you if you count that, I can see this being a double-edged sword. If you count that employee as being stationed at the headquarters, that means the headquarters now has more employees, and they might now be be subject to these statutes that have minimum employee requirements. On the other hand, if you say no, these are these are dispersed employees all over the country. Now, technically, the company is doing business in all these other jurisdictions, and they could arguably, or potentially be hailed into court in those other jurisdictions.
2: That's right. And it works both ways, Rocky, because I love this discussion because it's exciting. Because if you have someone managing uh, a workforce from Let's say a uh, San Diego, California. Sure. I keep mentioning it because you I love, love San the city. Diego. I was
1: going to say I, I think I know where this is headed. Trang's going to be in San Diego.
2: It's so hot here in Texas. San Diego is <laughs> a big break, and the views uh, can be better. But uh, let's say you have a dispersed workforce across the country, and sure. you're managing the uh, the workforce from San Diego. Well, guess where? Um, if there's where the lawsuit may be filed, mm-hmm. a claim may be filed uh, if there's a. Employment uh, problem. It could be in those cities, or it could be in San Diego. The jurisdiction would be where the management is running the whole nationwide operation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it could be all over the place.
1: Let's maybe talk for a second, because I don't want to forget Title Seven, especially in the in the context of sexual harassment claims. You know, I don't know if you've seen any of this yet, but it'd be interesting to kind of get a glimpse on what. Title VII sexual harassment claims are going to look like in the work-from-home context. You know, people are all remote. You know, is it still possible to be sexually harassed? I'm assuming the answer is yes. But then what does that look like? And what will courts and judges be looking for to determine if an actual claim existed?
2: This may be a little sensitive to some people, but it's still possible to be sexually harassed even if the other person's not in per- is not physically there. Okay. So some folks are thinking very traditional sexual harassment, you got to have a man and a woman or a man and a man present in one place, and the other person is creating a hostile work environment. Yeah. But what I've seen over the years is that much much of these um, harassment is a combination, but oftentimes the complaints are about inappropriate communication by text messaging. Soon you're going to see cases file where inappropriate emails. And I think that's that's pretty common, but you're going to see inappropriate communication through team messages, Slack, or even on video calls, uh, Zoom calls or anything like that. Because um, if someone is trying to hit on another person or is trying to exercise dominion over someone sexually, they'll do it through any means of communication. Uh, it makes the lawyer's job a lot easier if it's in uh, a medium that can be recorded and could be re- reproduced, we can watch it or read it later on. It's going to be interesting, too. I, I imagine that,
1: especially over text message or over team chats, you know, there's a the use of emojis, right? And so a lot of times it's, it's not it's not actual words of, you know, hey, do you want to go do such and such? Or, hey, will you go out with me? It might be an emoji that could be interpreted in in a multitude of ways. Have you seen any cases like that or have you come across those?
2: just had a hearing. Uh, I just <laughs> followed my closing statement about whether or not an emoji was sent on purpose or uh, it was intentional. Uh, and, um, and the emoji was graphic in nature. Okay. You have to be careful with these aftermarket third-party emojis. You may be pressing the button on your uh, phone and it'll pop up something inappropriate because they're using AI or algorithm to try to interpret what you're trying to say. So you may be giving someone the middle finger by accident or (laughs) something along the same genre, and it could be much more graphic. Wow. Okay. What
1: about race discrimination claims? You know, something like pre-pandemic, there was a lot of talk about implicit bias and trying to eliminate implicit bias so that you treat people more fairly how does that change in a remote setting where not everybody's sitting in the same room? You know, as, a, as an employer, how do you guard yourself? And as an employee, how do you protect your rights to make sure you're not subjected to some form of implicit bias? You know, presumably in an office, it's a little bit easier to tell the interpersonal relationships, but when you're, when you're remote, I imagine that changes. I don't know if you agree or disagree.
2: Oh, I agree because most of the interviews that's, uh being conducted over the past year and a half when it comes to implicit bias is whether or not you're factoring in some personal bias against a, an individual's sure. with a protected category. Is um you're conducting video interviews of potential job candidates. And it's very hard to deny the fact that you know what they look and sound like and you are also observing their surrounding unless they're using right. a background, which I recommend for mm-hmm. job interviews. Because you don't want to give cues on your ethnicity or your religious preferences by having a background. And maybe you have a cross or you have an altar or something like that in the background. And you're communicating that information subconsciously to your uh, uh, your potential employer and they're looking at it. Or you have a potential employer talking to an employee on video chat. And they rarely visit the employee at home in, in a regular setting. But right. through Zoom or video conference, you're taking in information that you're not supposed to uh, in a regular work environment. You're you're observing their interaction with their family members or even what their family members or kids or uh, what their personal life is like, and you're making judgment calls. And we're seeing uh, some... Um, oops incident, um, mm-hmm. some virus stories about someone giving an interview of their, uh, their hotel or their home, and some viewer will, will pin in on something that was uh, left accidentally mm-hmm. in view of the, the camera. And so employers are making the same judgment call. So if, when it comes to implicit bias, you might be making judgment calls on someone based on what you're seeing in their homes, and those may be s- indication or associated with protected characteristics such as your religion. Or your ethnicity.
1: Well, it's—I it, imagine that'd be interesting too, especially in when it comes to unemployment claims. You know, whether somebody was terminated for cause or not terminated for cause, based on what their surroundings looked like when they were on a Zoom call, right? I mean, is it w- were they doing something that was quote unprofessional and in violation of company standards? So, how do employees and employers kind of navigate that? Is it—I mean, do they all just use backgrounds? Do they use sort of? Very plain backgrounds, or you know, is there going to have to be some room made within the law for slip-ups like that to occur without it, without it creating issues for either party? I mean, how do you see that playing out?
2: I see it playing out with employers coming out with more updated internet and personal conduct rules in their handbook, and they will, um, they have to if they're going to terminate an employee for a violation of workplace conduct. Articulate things that are prohibited. So, if they're going to say uh, we're we're not going to allow, we're going to terminate anyone that shows displaced nu- nudity or uh, inappropriate um, images. Well, then you have to identify at your home during phone, c- doing video calls also. So, don't have don't have that uh, business on up top and. <laughs> um fun on the bottom right like where so if you're going to say you got to wear appropriate clothing then yeah just just articulate that but if someone said no one's told me i had to wear um shorts uh i can't wear shorts at work well articulate that so in your policy and twc will only fire someone will only justify denying someone um unemployment benefits if they violate a work policy But they often rely on whether or not that policy was communicated verbally or in writing. Hmm. It was never articulated because no one ever sat down and thought about it. Then um, you can't use it to deny an employee unemployment benefits.
1: Sure. Are you seeing a lot of employers now going back and revising their their employee handbooks to address these employment law issues? Or are employers kind of still relying on on old manuals and just kind of hoping that they
2: work out okay? Rocky, surprisingly, no employers are doing it. Um, I haven't seen anyone issued updated employment uh, policies for work from home. And I deal with a a lot of large companies, medium-sized too. You expect them to have updated internet policy specifically addressing work from home, and I haven't seen any. And I think that's a problem. Everyone that's um, justifying or explaining why they terminate or discipline someone, when you look at their policy, it's like three or four years old and it's all outdated. Why are they not updating? Is
1: it because they're thinking that COVID will pass and it's all gonna go back to pre-COVID you know, working conditions or it's just they just haven't gotten around to it? Do you have any
2: insights on that? In a large uh, nationwide or international company, it's a committee approach to upgrade any employee handbook. You just can't flex and add things to it. So it's generally better to make things really broad so that you can apply to most situation. Uh, smaller companies are not doing it because they just lack the resources or they're procrastinating. Uh, they rather deal with emergency items or short-term problems than something that may or may not happen. Uh, the only problem I see with this situation is that we are not going back to the office uh, <laughs> like before. Sure. Uh, I think it's going to be a hybrid schedule. I think that uh, there are going to be positions where people are permanently hired, directly into work from home uh, positions.
1: We are running short on time. So I wanted, to, I, I wanted to be respectful of making sure that we covered all the issues you think we need to cover. Is there anything that you think employers or employees need to kind of be cognizant of as they move forward into this brave new world of staying at home and and not going out anywhere <laughs> as they work. Is there it, it, any kind of last minute thoughts on what people should be thinking about?
2: I think that hours worked is really important because it's too easy to have days merged together when you're working from home. And it seems like a, your office hours are getting longer and longer because you never leave the office because you live at home where your office is. And so people are, unless they put some structure in place, their employees are going to work longer hours. They're going to get burned out and they're going to have a retention problem or the employee will project um, employment issue because they're they're burned out or fatigue. And so don't overwork yourself and uh, don't allow your staff or your employees to overwork themselves too because um, work from home is supposed to be an improvement on your life. It allows you freedom to travel, freedom to flex your hours and work when you want, how many days you want, as long as you get the work done. But if you don't put some limit to that, you're going to be working too much and too many hours. And you're not going to enjoy the benefits of work from home. You can be a digital nomad and work from anywhere and uh, improve your life and improve the time that you have with your families and some personal time. So given that, do you think it's
1: possible that moving forward, employers don't put work time restrictions, they give tasks and say, get this done. And then once you're done with that, we'll talk about what you do next. And, and so when you said, just get your work done, do you think that's going to be the new structure? It's get your work done. Here's your work, whether you work, whether you work 40 hours this week and 40 hours next week, or the, whether you work 90 hours this week and no hours next week, just make sure you get your work done. You know, is that going to be a viable arrangement moving forward? Or are there going to be issues for that?
2: I believe what you're saying is correct. And it's, it's a concept called a, asynchronous communication and also um, responsibility. Asynchronous communication means my virtual assistant working at night in Asia will leave a message for me, leave the work for me, and I log in the next day. I read the messages, and I respond back. In order to do that, you have to have everyone to be responsible and personally accountable to get the work done, but also to sit down and figure out what the process is. Oftentimes, people have uh, all the employees in the office because they're lazy. They're lazy creating a system in place where you can have asynchronous communication and Project planning and project completion and collaboration in different time zone, and so you're putting everyone in the office just so you can monitor. You can you count attendance. You're making sure they're there and you can pay them a, pay them a wage. But are they actually getting new work done? Right. Are they just moving their pencil and mouse around until they're watching the clock? Things could be be better. But we have the technology now where in uh, as, asynchronous communi- communication allows you to at first was send a letter or, or send an email and someone could read it the next day and respond. You have text messages, that was a little better, but now you have the ability to send messages in a chat and read the history of everything that your team members have talked about that day. And, you, and once you clock in, you can get caught up and you can collaborate and um, don't forget you can record videos of yourself talking so that you don't burn everybody else by just reading messages all day, (laughs) hundreds of messages. Some things are better said on a video than uh, through uh, a
1: typed message. Sure. Well, with that, I do see that we're out of time. And after this discussion, I think I'm going to go binge watch The Office because that's just putting me in an office kind of mood to watch people do nothing all day. It's going to be a lot of fun. But Trang, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us and for sharing your insights. It's been fascinating. Thank you. My pleasure. And of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in and encourage you to stay safe and be well. And just like the listeners who tuned into this podcast and told us to to get an issue on employment law, if you've got an issue you'd like us to explore, please let us know. We are all ears and we want to hear from you. And if you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn